When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The FT Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, is there any sign of a turning point in Syria? If you begin to lose, and the signs are clearly there, the support of the merchant and business class, particularly in Damascus and Aleppo, you're in trouble. There are insistent reports that troops are neither being paid nor fed. Could Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the ex-head of the IMF, really make a political comeback in France? I now think that for Strauss-Kahn it would be a big risk in returning to France and thinking that he could somehow conduct politics as he would have conducted it when he left in 2007. I think the French media climate has changed and it would be a lot more aggressive and a lot more uncomfortable for him. And Thailand's first female prime minister, what challenges will she face? She's sort of sandwiched between the possibly irreconcilable expectations of an establishment that are very nervous and her own supporters. But first to Syria. Demonstrations and the violent suppression of demonstrations by the Assad government continues. But is there any sign of how the crisis might actually end? Joining me in the studio is the FT's international affairs editor, David Gardner. OK, David, it's, the demonstrations go on, the suppression of the demonstrations go on. What's your sense of the state of play now in Syria? I think it's very fluid, but what is clear as the weeks and months go on is that the base of the regime is narrowing and the extent of the protests, the movement bent on bringing the regime down, is expanding. Its coordination has improved a lot. And it is clearly much better funded. The extent to which they are using Turkey as a sort of organising hub is not clear, but they are. I think this is actually measurable. In mid-April, the regime was going in very hard to two or three places at a time. And another dozen or so would erupt. By mid-June, that equation has changed dramatically. They're still only able to go into two or three places hard at a time, and another between 120 to 140 places ignite every Friday. Last Friday was by far the biggest ever because they had had to withdraw from important cities like Hama and Homs in the centre towards the west of the country. They are manifestly overstretched, Their willingness to use violence appears undiminished, but they have to concentrate it. And what they have been concentrating on, curiously, is the northwest of the country, in essence, the Alawite heartland and the corridor through it, and trying to create a buffer to prevent that corridor. That is not the activity of a confident regime which is quite certain that it's going to remain in place. You don't secure your rear guard in that way if that were the case. 
Now, a lot of these situations in the end turn on who controls the capital city. Do they still have firm control of Damascus itself? Yes, but interestingly, rather in the way that they had to withdraw from Hama, I know they're, they're still ringing it and they're still sending in militia, etc., they've had to abandon virtually all security in the suburbs of Damascus. There are not even traffic policemen to be seen there now, which is why you get the eruption of demonstrations in the suburbs of the capital, which I would imagine are attended in part by people in the centre as well. But that is an area in which you can rally. The other key thing that one tends to watch in situations like this is the loyalty of the, the army. Is any sign of that cracking? You're familiar with the incident last month in the northwest al Sharud, into which they piled immediately to staunch this mutiny by the army. Uh, what happened there, it seems to me, is the essence of it is this. They, they have two elite units, essentially special force units, the 4th Armoured Division and the Republican Guard, on which they can entirely rely. As this phenomenon has expanded the protests, they have become progressively overstretched and they've had to involve units which are not entirely reliable. And for the most part, they keep short of munitions, short of fuel as a matter of policy. And some of them have mutinied. The, the demographics of the country tell you straight off the bat that if 75% of the population is Sunni, that makeup will be reflected in the army. Now, the command structure is built around the Alawites, but, you know, generals alone can't fight wars. One of the interesting and, I guess, frustrating thing for outsiders is how effectively they've kept the outside world out of that country. So it is hard to get a sense of how long this could go on for. But what's your feeling? Do you think you can get any steer? Are we talking months? Probably. It, it, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It is very hard to put your finger on this. But there are always telltale signs, one of which is that they're running out of money. We've already discussed the way in which the army is overstretched. One could add to that that the Alawite community, the 12% of the country around which the regime has built its power base, is also cracking in its cohesion. But then if you begin to lose, and the signs are clearly there, the support of the merchant and business class, particularly in Damascus and Aleppo, you're in trouble. I mean, there's been a huge outflow of capital. Some people say as much as $20 billion in recent months, most of it towards Istanbul. Rami Makhlouf, the president's cousin, a billionaire who most conspicuously has profited from this power structure, has had to make a personal deposit in the central bank of $1 billion. There are insistent reports that troops are neither being paid nor fed. Now, that speaks to a gradual erosion of capacity and raises the question, how long can they keep this up? Certainly months, but not indefinitely. David, thank you very much indeed. Let's move to Europe now and the fate of Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Joining me in the studio to talk is Ben Hall, who for many years was an FT correspondent in Paris and is now deputy news editor here in London. Ben, about a week ago, it's suddenly the case against Strauss-Kahn appears to collapse and there was this great excitement that, well, maybe he would re-enter French politics. Is that really feasible? No, and I think perhaps the reality has begun to dawn on the French, including on left-wing sympathisers, members of the Socialist Party, that actually it's perhaps unlikely that Strauss-Kahn will run in the presidential race, and actually he may be a liability for the centre-left in the presidential race, and that's, I think, a big switch in opinion over recent weeks. 
And so there's logistical difficulties, obviously. I mean, the case isn't actually over yet, although it may be soon. And also, I guess, a sense that even if the actual rape charges collapse, he has been damaged by the sort of rather look into his lifestyle, if I'm concerned. Yeah, well, I think the ambivalence of the French might be partly explained by the limbo that he's in and that once, if and when, the charges are dropped against him, then it might become a bit clearer. They may be more persuaded by the idea of his presidency. But I think what's happened is that the French are hoping that he'll somehow be exonerated. But I think that's unlikely. I don't think he will be exonerated. The charges will be dropped and there will always be questions over what actually happened in that hotel room. And I think the problem with this whole affair is that it has focused attention on Dominic Strauss-Kahn's character. And even if he is completely innocent of raping this woman, there is a question mark of why, if we believe what his lawyers have been saying, he was having sex with a woman in a hotel room, taking such risks at the height of his powers as the head of the IMF. And as he was preparing a bid for the French presidency, it seems a sort of reckless thing to be doing, reckless sort of conduct. And I think perhaps what's happened is that the French people are beginning to look at these issues and wonder, is this the kind of guy we want as our head of state? There's even been some talk of this whole affair marking a kind of cultural change in France where before people said, well, the French are a bit different, they kind of tolerate their leaders having rather colourful private lives, which are kept very private. We all know, for example, that Mitterrand had a, a you know, secret daughter who yeah. was growing up in Paris. But that now maybe there is a sense that there's something actually not too savoury about not just the behaviour of Strauss-Kahn, but what was tolerated in the behaviour of great men in France. I mean, I think that notion of French media self-censorship was beginning to break down anyway, probably thanks to President Nicolas Sarkozy, who's sort of thrust his own private life right into the into the centre of public life, if you like. And so I think the media were beginning to take a much closer look at people's private conduct. Strauss-Kahn himself, people knew of his womanising, shall we say, but there was never such a, a problem about his character. And I now think that for Strauss-Kahn, it would be a big risk in returning to France and thinking that Hugh could somehow conduct politics as he would have conducted it when he left in 2007. I think the French media climate has changed and it would be a lot more aggressive and a lot more uncomfortable for him. And is there a feminist angle to it all? I mean, are French women speaking up about this this well, kind of behaviour? If you look at opinion polls, it's women who are more hostile to the idea of his candidacy. I think that was possibly always the case, but I think it's been accentuated by recent events. Uh, you know, I'm not sure the women of France necessarily relish the idea of a sort of macho Nicolas Sarkozy versus a macho Dominic Strauss-Kahn as, as a presidential race next year. And ironically, I guess, that the, the two candidates who might benefit from this whole imbroglio are, are both women, Martine Aubry and perhaps Marine Le Pen for the Front National. Absolutely. I mean, Martine Aubry and Dominic Strauss-Kahn had this arrangement whereby the best place amongst them would actually run for the presidency. I have to say that probably looks like Martin Aubry now rather than Strauss-Kahn. And Marine Le Pen looks well set to make a lot of profit from this focus on character because actually, remarkably, she comes across dangerously, some people might say, as somebody who's quite normal and quite authentic. Thank you very much, Ben. Let's move to our final topic for today, Thailand, and its new Prime Minister, Yinglak Shinawatra. After victory in the elections earlier this week, she's now the country's first female prime minister. But she's also a controversial figure because she's the younger sister of the exiled former prime minister, Taksin Shinawatra, who's been convicted of corruption. Earlier, Serena Tarling spoke to the FT's Bangkok correspondent, Tim Johnston, about the challenges the new prime minister faces. 
She started by asking how Yingluck's victory had gone down in Bangkok, which has been a centre of anti-Shinawatra sentiment. I think there's a lot of scepticism, but there's also a lot of hope. She's got a very difficult job. She needs to balance the worries of the elite of the establishment who backed her opposition in the election and are very, very leery of anything to do with her brother Taksin, uh, who they, of course, removed in that coup in 2006. But against that, she has to balance the expectations of her support base. Uh, most of Bangkok is trying to see which way she's going to go. She's opened very well. This coalition that she's built is a sign that she's willing to work with others, but it's also a sign that she's not to be toyed with. She does have a very strong popular mandate, and uh, she will stand up, I suspect, to any pressure that is put on her. How likely is it that Taksin will make a political comeback? I think he wants to return to Thailand, and I think he probably would love to be a kingmaker. Whether he actually wants to come back into power as prime minister, I don't know. I think probably he's always said that he doesn't want to come back. And I think he's probably, on this occasion, telling the truth. I think he realises that he is too divisive a figure. In the last 24 hours, he's been broadcasting regularly, saying he wants to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And that, I think, is tied in with his willingness to delay his return to Thailand until it is the right time. And how could she pave the way for his return? Mr. Taxon has been convicted three times and his sister has been talking about an amnesty for political crimes which would pave the way for him to be able to return. It's highly contentious, certainly one of the issues that the opposition of the Democrat Party were hitting very hard during the electoral process was the idea that Mrs. Yingnuck is basically trying to whitewash her brother's record. And that had a very strong resonance, I think, among his supporters. Of course, they lost the election, but they're still a force to be reckoned with. So I think she will be looking at ways of gently normalising the idea, perhaps, of an amnesty and then raising the issue of whether her brother will return. So a lot hinges on her management of taxin, but what other challenges is she facing now? She's sort of sandwiched between the possibly irreconcilable expectations of an establishment that are very nervous and her own supporters. And I think it's going to be a very difficult line to trade. It's noticeable that actually only one prime minister in the last 78 years has ever finished a term, and that is her brother Taksin Chinwat in his first term, 2001 to 2006. What's the army's response been so far? The army's been making the right noises. The uh, outgoing defence minister, General Bowen, said that he had spoken to the army and they accepted the result. But they are uncertain allies, I think, on this. They see their job as protecting Thailand and take that remit very, very broadly. And I think they will step in should things get past a certain point. But I think we're still quite a long way from that point. If they want to remove the government, there are a number of judicial routes they could go down. There are a number of other methods they could use before they step in with the tanks. And turning briefly to the economy, Thailand has struggled a lot with inflation. What has Yin Luck said she's going to do about that? Most of the inflation, which hit 4.1% in June, is imported. The Bank of Thailand's been putting up its base rates to try and control it, but it hasn't been terribly effective. The fear is that these promises of largesse, the minimum wage rises, the increases in social security, there are a lot of promises out there which are going to be expensive and are going to inject money into the economy. 
The Bank of Thailand has been warning that this will fuel inflation. And I think that is probably a long-term worry. But I think we're still in early days. The global economy is slowing, and that will take some of the pressure off inflation. And also, I suspect that there are quite a lot of these political promises, as in any election campaign, that won't be fulfilled in the final accounting. That was Serena Tarling talking to Tim Johnson. And that's it for this week. My thanks to David Gardner and Ben Hall in the studio and to Tim Johnson in Bangkok. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.